Chapter 4. Facing My Own Blackness By the time I was 25, I had seen my fair share of racial injustice. Most of it was dead, unarmed black men and women, and in some cases kids, plastered on the news, and other times it was the people who'd killed them on the news also being pronounced innocent by chiefs of police and attorneys general. In addition to that, I had seen a growing trend in systemic racism that had far-reaching and wildly echoing effects. By the time I was 30, I thought the worst things that could happen to a person of color were happening right before my eyes. And then I took a closer look at history. Between 1954 and 1968, a decade and a half in which Emmett Till was killed, there was a bus boycott, a church bombing, sit-ins were sparked, ruby bridges broke a glass ceiling, 250,000 people marched on Washington, and both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were assassinated. When I think about the total tonnage of that, the totality of that period of time, I'm reminded that my blackness is rooted in something much bigger. It's rooted deeply in the history and memory of my culture. It's something that I carry with me every day of my life, but not just me, the people who look like me. And the thing is, it is a remarkably beautiful thing. I was blessed to be part of this beautiful race, this beautiful culture. But unfortunately, I was born into a world that would not only not appreciate my race, but would also castigate and denigrate me because of it. And therein lies the problem. From the Hyman Blog and Press Play Podcast, I'm J.D. Hyman. As a black man living here in America, I am living proof that while all men were created equal, not all men are equal. We're here to dig into the American political system, explore and unearth experiences from the human experience, and be a catalyst for some hard conversations that need to be had. No matter what brought you here, I'm glad you came. Once again, my name is JD, and this is the Hyman Podcast. Part 1. The Man Who Came In From The Dark Let's go over some quick facts. Black students are three times more likely to be suspended and 18 times more likely to be tried as an adult in the criminal justice system. Black women are three times more likely to die during childbirth, and black people are two and a half times more likely to be killed by the police. Black people hold 2.6% of the wealth in the U.S. compared to 90% of that of white people and are two times more likely to be unemployed. Black people make up 13.4% of the U.S. population, yet 38.5% of the prison population and 40% of the homeless population. Now, what does that tell you? And yet, in the face of overwhelming empirical evidence, to say nothing of stats on poverty, graduation rates, and home ownership, to name a few, people still will look me right in the eyes and tell me that systemic racism is not a thing. I was well aware of the problems that existed, and to some degree, I tried to avoid them. And then George Floyd died, and I found myself thrust into a fight that I not only wasn't prepared to fight, but that I didn't want to fight. But here we were, in reality, unable to escape the protracted history of the past. At some point, I found myself on LinkedIn. I go there sometimes because I find it's the only social media platform that's not swarming with 
political posts, celebrities pretending to know about politics, and people who are genuinely not experts in any particular field being experts in almost every field. It's a welcome reprieve. Anyways, it's a Wednesday, and I'm eating a sandwich and scrolling through the feed, and I stop. There's a post that catches my attention. I click on it, and an article opens up. I glance at it, but that's not why I'm here today. I need to close the article and keep scrolling. But for some reason, I find it too difficult to navigate away from the page I'm on. The article is called Facing My Own Blackness, but the article isn't what initially captivates my attention. The picture in the header is a familiar scene, a black and white photograph of a protest. A cardboard poster dominates the picture. The stencil lettering reads, I can't breathe. As I continue to scroll, there are more photographs, all black and white, all protest related. I locate the photographer, but then I read a few sentences on accident and I immediately scroll back to the top and start reading from the beginning. I become engulfed in the story. It's written by a guy named Andrew Williams. It starts out talking about Trayvon Martin and Tyron Lewis, who was also an unarmed black man who died at the hands of police in Florida. But his death sparked the St. Petersburg riots in 1996. Early on in the article, he writes, Racism has held its knee on our neck since we won our freedom, and we've been gasping for air to be heard ever since. Wow. And then I realized that my experiences are shared experiences across an entire nation, across an entire culture. How dare I assume no one feels as strongly about this issue as I do. I keep reading. And the more I read, the more I come to the conclusion that he has a story synonymous to my own. He has a story that he wants to tell and a story he wants to have heard. At this point, I have no other choice. I had to reach out to him. So I sent him a message and asked if he'd be willing to talk to me about this article and about why he wrote it. And to my surprise, he responded and he happily agreed. I wanted to know why he wrote this article. It was beautifully written and I was certain that purpose went into this writing. I wasn't wrong. One of the things I had struggled with throughout my life is sort of my my identity as a black man, right? I had resisted it for for so many different reasons, because I, I felt like it held me back in a lot of ways. I felt like I had a much more nuanced identity than that. And um, this moment sort of forced me to reflect on that and sort of traced how um, how I've come to really understand the way in which I walk through the world as a Black man, uh, as an adult, um, in ways that I didn't as a young man. Uh, I found that to be very interesting. I didn't think that the history of being Black applied to me either. Not that I hadn't embraced my culture, but I thought the country had evolved to a place where racial tension was on the rapid decline. But as I too grew up, I began to see the world wasn't what I thought it was. It wasn't the shiny, happy place I made it out to be in my head. Andrew, so kind of tell me about what went into, you know, writing this article and like why it all came about. The reason why I wrote this article, um, and I started from the beginning and I really felt immersed in, in, in those memories in terms of thinking about um, the, the riots that happened in St. Petersburg and not really understanding exactly what was happening. It was something that I couldn't fully come to see what was really happening and that it was a microcosm of things that were happening across the country. I tried to capture that moment and I kept writing. I said, where else has this led me in my life? And I thought about my relationship to 
law enforcement throughout my life and that I hadn't had those experiences where I'd never had a run-in with the police. I'd never felt like I'd been targeted. And a lot of it was because of a lot of choices I made as a kid. Like He found that by writing, he was able to express himself in a way that allowed him to cope with recent events and to also come to terms with how he's grown into his identity as a black man. I too went to a school that was predominantly white and I don't know if it was the way I grew up or, you know, coming from like an, an all black school or whatever it was, but you know, I kind of felt like I was exempt from everything that was happening in the real world. When Trayvon Martin was killed, I was maybe three or four years older than he was, but it still felt very distant. Like that was something that, you know, just could not possibly happen. And, you know, the more it happens, that invincibility that you feel, you know, kind of starts to wear away. So I was very, you know, intrigued by some of the titles that you used throughout this article. You know, was that language deliberate or that did it just kind of happen organically? Oh, that's a great question. I, it was a bit of both. I got, <laughs> I think that, um, I think you, what you were talking, what you're speaking to is um, exactly what it was. It was um, forcing myself through my own creative energy to face the reality of how, of who I am and how the world sees me. It's been really painful to come to understand that you talked about being exempt from, you know, what other black men have had to suffer and i felt like you know i had this superpower where i was a, an intelligent like determined young black man and that i had the wind in my back which is something i also talk about and um and then i i found out not only that i had wind in my back but i also had a headwind right i had to, it was it was kind of both things at the same time and so that language was um it was very deliberate in terms of talking about that struggle and talking about um realizing that the color of my skin posed an imminent danger to my life. He talks about the first time he came to realize that racism was alive and well and how jarring that moment was for him. I remember the first time that I experienced overt racism, I was in um, Richmond and it was in a bar and I bumped into some, some guy and uh, it's a Caucasian guy and he, and he, and he uses racial slurs that I had never heard before. Um, I had never heard someone actually speak these words and it really caught me off guard. And when I originally reached out to him, I told him it would be a 15, 20 minute conversation tops. But there was something that both of us needed. And as unexpected as it was, we needed to dive deeper into the issue. No one wants to feel that like they're complicit in the way that systemic racism has threatened the lives of so many black people. What's really powerful about this moment is that, um, and I've talked about this with friends, is that COVID. 19 in this pandemic has forced people to to really see it you know what i mean to open their eyes to it like it, in the part of the conversation that really left me speechless we talked about the silence of our friends you know some people can't kind of came and you know to their defense or to kind of you know check on them see how they were doing and some people just kind of remained silent on the issue that feeling of like i know you see what's happening in the world and why have you not said anything? What do I want you to say? I have absolutely no idea, but I know I want you to say something. Yeah, I was going to say that's that that is it. I think that uh, maybe in speaking up, you know, someone is sort of confirming what's happening or. After George Floyd died, I felt defeated. A lot of people felt defeated. My new friend Andrew felt defeated. 
And while we lay in a place where we needed people to help us up, we were both met with overwhelming silence. One thing I like about Andrew, like me, he still has hope in mankind. I will continue to um, make myself available. And I believe that in having tough conversations, we begin to understand each other much better. By and large, I'm glad I was able to have that conversation. It helped to confirm many of the apprehensions and doubts I was having. It helped me to realize that this is a crusade worthy of fighting. It helped me to really understand the importance of these conversations, what it means and how we must seek to understand the providence of this plight in order to find effective solutions for it. But then I realized there was something I hadn't considered, a very important question that I yet to ask myself. More on that after the break. Hello, Brooks here with the Books with Brooks monthly book club podcast. We read one book a month and then we talk about it. Books like Stephen King's The Shining or Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. If you're on the hunt for book recommendations and enjoy sparkling conversation, come read along with us and then listen in. Hey everyone, it's Cameron Justice, co-host of the Orange is Orange or Browns podcast. Make sure you check us out for everything Browns. We got you covered before the game, after the game. Here are our takes, here are our feedback, here are our criticisms and our praises. If you like the Browns, you're going to love this podcast. And I'm Dennis Maniloff, co-host along with the roadman, Kenny Rhoda of the Next Man Up podcast, part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Roadman and I do a deep dive into Browns, Indians, Cavs, Ohio State, and anything else that's on the sports fan's mind. Part two, the significance of it all. So, like I said, there was an important question I failed to ask myself. But before I bring that up, we have to have a little history lesson. For almost three quarters of a century, Republicans dominated the electorate. They pushed issues that built infrastructure, transcontinental railroads, capitalized on trade and tariffs, and improved the creating and sustaining of businesses. Everything seemed great. That is, until the Great Depression happened. America had seemingly lost faith in Republican leadership, and that created an opening for a viable Democratic challenger. So now let's skip ahead. The year is 1948 and Harry Truman is finishing up the remainder of President Roosevelt's term, who died as a result of intercerebral hemorrhage during his fourth term as president. Upset that Democrats had embraced the ideals of civil rights, a small faction of Democrats, led by Governor Strom Thurmond and Fielding Wright, broke away from the Democratic Party and formed their own, the state's rights Democratic Party, also known as the Dixiecrats. The Dixiecrats were largely white supremacists and had one goal, and it didn't include winning any presidential elections. They wanted to disrupt the Electoral College in the hopes that Truman would lose the election. They were wrong. You see, by this time, the Deep South was hell-bent on maintaining segregation, and as civil rights became more popular, the more the South got entrenched in their ways. To symbolize their efforts, the Dixiecrats took up the Confederate flag to embolden the hatred of the breaking down of their American way. Of course, Truman won the election, and with that, the state's rights Democratic Party dissolved. 
The members of the party eventually returned to the Democratic Party, but as the Democrats started to push bigger government, progressive ideals, and socialist-like programs in the government, this faction of people opted to support smaller government, thinking it would bring them back to their way of life. But unfortunately for them, the times were changing and they had to adapt or get left behind. By and large, they abandoned their white supremacist ways, although like any bad habit, many of these people still had racism exploding from their pores. They aligned themselves with another group of people who, like them, were former Democrats who took a more conservative approach to government, fighting for states' rights, smaller government, fewer taxes, and less oversight, and thus was born the modern-day Republican Party. And to that question, when did I face my own blackness? When did I come to realize that my very existence was a threat to someone else's way of life? When did I become an expendable figment of this nation? When did I realize that the color of my skin was viewed as inferior to other people? Well, to be honest, I think some part of me always knew. But here's the crux of it. And I've said this before. And then I heard Andrew say it. And then it all sort of came full circle. This is what I know. The America of 1948 doesn't exist anymore, but some of the radical ideals of that time are still alive and kicking. And what's more, those ideals have names and faces, and some of them still can't seem to pull themselves out of that mindset. We have a long way to go, but one of the first steps of this journey is recognizing that a problem exists. I've accepted that, and so have a lot of other people. But for the ones that haven't, getting them to buy into the existence of a problem that they don't see requires a strength I'm not too familiar with. First and foremost, we have to continue those hard conversations. We have to open the lines of communication we're afraid to open, start dialogues, even the ones we don't want to start. Change has to start somewhere. And now that I face my blackness, now that so many of us have faced our own blackness, we can be better advocates for the needs of the black community. We can educate other people who are willing to listen to what our blackness means. And as we continue to navigate what this means and how it fits into the new normal, there's still a lot more that needs to be said. We may not fully understand the provenance of our plight or its nature, but there is merit in the human experience as a whole, and there is significance in the struggle. My name is JD Hyman, and this is the Hyman Podcast. I'll see you next time. This episode of the Hyman Podcast was written and produced by myself, with additional copy editing and story editing by Emily Stacy. Kevin Aki is our brand designer, and the music for this episode was composed and produced by Jim Yosef and Raphael Crux. Additional music was licensed from Epidemic Sound. The Hyman Podcast is produced in part by Press Play Podcast. Press Play is staffed by Chase Smith, our CEO and fearless leader. I serve as the Chief Operating Officer, and Brooks May is the Head of Content and Development. To learn more about the network, sponsorships, guest appearances, or if you're interested in launching your own podcast on our network, visit us on the web at www. Pressplaypodcast.com. Promotional consideration for this season of the Hyman Podcast was paid for by Blank Shell Gaming, Grant Furnace Designs, and Buds and Bloom New York. 
To learn more about this podcast, our mission and vision, as well as our sponsors, please visit us on the web at www.jdhyman.com.